Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church, and I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Would you do me a favor? Would you open up your Bibles to Psalm, Psalms chapter 14, Psalms chapter 14, and uh, give you a little bit of an introduction to the series we're in. We're in a seven-week series called Explore God. Um, would you do me a favor? Would you just raise your hand if you saw any kind of advertisement on a billboard, Facebook, social media, anywhere about Explore God? Okay, so apparently the advertising has been effective. Uh, Village Church did not pay for all of that advertising, just so we're aware. Um, but we are a part of just under 900 churches in the Chicagoland area that have joined together, and uh, we are answering together um, the seven biggest questions that non-Christians have about the Christian faith, but especially these are the seven most difficult questions that Christians everywhere have the hardest time giving answers to. And so our desire in this seven-week series is to bring uh, clarity and to be helpful and to give you tools and resources resources um, throughout this series. And in fact, I've engaged um, a number of people. They're exploring God legitimately. And let's be honest, when do we ever stop exploring God? Um, uh, my title actually uh, for my master's degree is called a master's of divinity, which is a complete stupid joke. Like who in the world has ever mastered divinity? So as far as I'm concerned, uh, I am still exploring God. And, and so these are questions that I just love digging into. And, and uh, if, if you are at all engaged with people who don't believe in Jesus, um, you need to kind of get your head around some of these questions. And to be honest, they're not just like contemporary questions. These have been asked by people for thousands of years who have wrestled with the very idea of who God is and what he's like. There are very real intellectual barriers that we all put up uh, that prevent us from taking a next step. And so here's what I want to do. I want to be as helpful as I possibly can. And so the question we're going to answer today is, is there a God? Now, before we do that, um, one of the things I want to um, let you know about is we love your questions. And Pastor Tim and Pastor Craig and I, um, over the next seven weeks, we want to answer all of your questions that you might have. And so um, you'll see this every week, but if you look at the next slide, you'll see at the bottom of all of our sermon slides, it says, God's Sermon Cues, text VC Sermon to 555-888. And uh, what you can do is submit any and all of your questions there. Once you text that VC Sermon to 555-888, it opens up a text thread. And then from then on out, you can submit any and all of your questions. Um, on Wednesday morning, every Wednesday morning, Tim and I go into the studio. We record our podcast. And uh, what we do on Wednesdays is we release an episode that has all your questions from that previous Sunday's sermon. So as you go through your community groups throughout the week, if you got questions, text them in. Uh, we'll get them all. And again, we record, I think, 10 a.m. on Wednesdays. So if you turn them in after that, then we're probably not going to get to those questions. But I want to encourage you to do that. Um, once you actually send VC Sermon to that, it's going to also send you a text with a link to the actual podcast. So you don't have to work very hard to actually find it. And uh, we release episodes uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if you want a doozy of an episode, uh, check out this past Friday. And then this coming Monday is also going to be pretty crazy. All right. So uh, let's agree on a couple things as we begin to answer this question. Um, number one, what I want to agree on is this. It is impossible to prove the existence or the non-existence of God. It, it is just flat out impossible. Some of you are like, okay, preacher man, prove to me that there's a God, and if you cannot give me empirical evidence, then I will not believe that there is a God. What I want to do is actually um, flip this question. I don't, I don't even know how the conversation got postured like this, um, but the reality is I can look at anybody who is a theist, that means somebody who believes in God, or who is an atheist who just believes there is no God, and say, prove it to me, and no atheist can prove there is no God. 
No theist, like I'm not gonna be able to truck God himself up in front of you right now and say, see him, touch him, like feel him, five senses, all that kind of stuff. Uh, proving the existence of God uh, is probably not going to be something any Christian that I've ever met is going to be able to do uh, in such a way that is so empirical that it is undeniable what God is, who God is, etc. I wish I could do that for you, um, which is why it requires faith to be a Christian. But it also requires faith, an unbelievable amount of faith to be an atheist. And, and I do believe it actually requires an infinite amount more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a theist. And by the end of this sermon, I I hope that I make such a convincing argument um, that you reconsider if that's where you're at. But also for a believer, what I want to do with you is I want to encourage you. um, I, nor will anybody else, be able to prove without a shadow of a doubt that God exists. But I think we can make a case that to deny it would actually be illogical. And so I want to lead you in that direction, and we're going to do that in a few different ways. Number two, I want to give you a little bit of freedom. It is not a Christian's job to convince a non-Christian that God exists. Even better, that Jesus is God. Um, There is no burden that I take upon myself to convince you of these things. In fact, um, I don't believe that I really have the power to convince you to believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, That is not in my power. So I release myself from the burden of trying to bring you to a place where you're not at today. Um, What I would love to do is explore God with you. I'd love to bring you the best of research on my end. I'd love to open up dialogues. And part of the the Q&A podcast is that we really do want you to respond um, privately. Um, I'm always open to sitting down one-on-one with people, as are all of our staff, and uh, not just preaching at you, but listening. I would love to hear where you're coming from and, and why even some of our ideas that we share with you, you don't buy them. Like, that's part of being humble, I think, in terms of our posture. It's part of what we do. Uh, I'm still exploring God, and what I want to encourage you to do is not stop. Um, Number three, can we just agree, atheist, agnostic, or otherwise, can we just agree that it would be much better if there was a good God who loved us, right? Like, let let me just share with you the implications, if there's no God, and I'm going to share it with you from a quote by a philosopher and theologian, uh, his name's William Lane Craig, and he wrote something I just found uh, incredibly, incredibly revealing. Um, so if I'm an atheist, here, here's, here are the implications of my reality. He says, if God does not exist, then both man and the universe are inevitably doomed to death. Man, like all biological organisms, must die with no hope of immortality, Man's life leads only to the grave. His life is but a spark in the infinite blackness, a spark that appears, flickers, and dies forever. The person I call myself will cease to exist. I will be no more. And the universe, too, faces death. Scientists tell us that the universe is expanding and everything in it is growing farther and farther apart. As it does so, it grows colder and colder and its energy is used up. Eventually, all the stars will burn out and all matter will collapse into dead stars and black holes. There will be no light at all, there will be no heat, there will be no life, only the corpses of dead stars and galaxies ever expanding into the endless darkness and the cold recesses of space, a universe in ruins. The entire universe marches irresistibly towards its grave, and the universe is plunging towards inevitable extinction. Death is written throughout its structure, there is no escape, there is no hope." If God does not exist, then you are just a miscarriage of nature thrust into a purposeless universe to live a purposeless life. Can we just agree that's not preferable? Like, 
I would love if there was any other plausible option, which is why if I were an atheist, if I were even toying with this notion, I would not stop hoping that somebody could sit down with me and show me why this is not the inevitable conclusion. Uh, Statistically, uh, the numbers are really hard to nail down, but maybe the max highest number that you could get for actual atheists in America would be maybe 10% of the population. It's still the the minority, um, but it is a worldview that feels very, very palatable for our children and grandchildren. There's something very, very easy about it, and so what we have to understand is more and more this is a dialogue that we have to get our head around and prepare ourselves for. Now, Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. First, we're going to look at this text, and then I want to share with you what I think are three unbelievably logical, helpful um, tools that you can put in your tool belt if you're a believer, and three things that I think every atheist just needs to face head-on without ulterior motive, just being honest about what science and reality tell us. Uh, David wrote Psalm 14, And uh, actually, many of you might think, this is a weird text, Michael. Um, If you're preaching a sermon where you're inviting atheists to church or you're giving your um, people a digital resource to give to people who are struggling with whether or not they believe in God, like this might be a weird set of verses to give them because it actually, on a surface level, feels pretty offensive. And uh, let's just start off. Here's what David says. He says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay, let's, let's get very practical. If I sit down with you and we're debating about uh, whether or not there's a God and I call you a fool, is this offensive or not? No, you're fine. You're like, oh, it's fine. You're ugly, right? You just go back and forth. No big deal. This would not, like, okay, so the Hebrew language is, is ancient and beautiful and nuanced and it's an unbelievable language. And sometimes when, when words get translated, this is the best translation, but it's deeper and thicker than this. There's, there's so much cultural context behind this. In fact, there are three Hebrew words for fool. This is Nabal, that is the word. And uh, David himself, who wrote this, had experience with an actual guy whose name was Nabal. In fact, it, it wouldn't be surprising to me after he met Nabal, he sits down and he pens this, Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. Because Nabal was an actual complete moron when you read the story about Nabal. But the, the word itself is a little bit bigger than this. And it typically refers to someone's moral compass and not necessarily their intellectual compass. Uh, what it does is it says, listen, uh, if you're going to just look at all of this world and you're going to suppress something so obvious, like that is not a wise thing to do. It's actually a little bit less offensive in Hebrew than it is in in English. But the wise man is the one you want to be in Psalms and the literature of the Hebrew people in this poetic world. The wise person is contrasted regularly with the fool. The wise person looks at the panorama of evidence, looks at the panorama of reality and says, I'm going to subject myself to reality and I'm not going to suppress it no matter how inconvenient the reality might actually be. So very simply, the fool in in Psalms, the fool here, is somebody who denies what is obvious because of ulterior motives. The fool is somebody who denies what is so obvious because there's something at work underneath that they may not even be aware of. Right? Have you ever not been aware of what's actually motivating you in your, in your life? The answer is 
Yeah, you do things and you're like, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I'm, I'm so like moved to this direction. And then later it's revealed to not actually be a wise course of action or maybe even true. So in my experience, and I've spent many, 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 many hours listening to over the last 20 years debates on atheists versus theists, et cetera, um, it's just a subject that has always greatly intrigued me. Um, and so in my experience, I have only really ever come across two defenses for atheism. And I want to give you the one that is probably the most prominent of the two. And this is the one where um, what I want to do is say, hey, if this is where you're at, um, can I just say your argument back to you and let's just consider it at face value. Uh, number one, the first reason, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it and I'm going to explain it, is number one, the first reason people reject God is because they are disappointed in their perception of God. And let me just say on the front end, if I would be an atheist, if your perception of God was real. Because the version of God that you're describing does not exist. You are absolutely 100% right. In fact, in almost every conversation, you listen to Bill Maher online, you listen to any, uh, any, any theologian, philosopher, etc., they're always going to inevitably come back to this point. Uh, if there is a God, and he is powerful enough to create this world, he could stop evil, and he doesn't, therefore he must be a megalomaniac, totally sadistic, um, evil, evil, um, malicious, not benevolent, not good, not loving, uh, who in God's green earth would actually see the crazy of this world, the evil of this world, and they could stop it, but they choose not to. That God, um, I, I refuse to accept that God is real, and if he is, I don't believe in him. That's actually the line of reasoning. Now, next week, we're going to actually deal with that question. Um, we're going to answer the question, if God is good, then why is there evil? Uh, we're going to try to tackle that and go after that. But that is a different discussion than whether or not there is a God. And, and this is when I sit down with people who don't believe in God. It almost always exclusively comes back to this. And what I want to say is that discussion about evil and the nature of God is actually separate. Um, what we have to do is look at this on its own and say, uh, is it possible? Is it even scientifically possible, logically possible, that all of this emerged out of nothing, that either matter is eternal or all of a sudden matter out of nothing began to exist. Like, is that even logical or scientifically plausible? The second reason is not typically one that is on the tip of the tongue of people who reject God. Uh, I found as I dig a little bit deeper, it's actually there for a lot of people. The, re the idea of God is not convenient for the lifestyle that we want to live. In fact, most Christians live like functional, practical atheists because the reality of if there is a God, it has massive, massive implications. If there is a God, then there is truth and purpose. There is a moral code. There is ultimately somebody that is bigger than you and stronger than you. If there is a God, the demands on your life are profound. They're unbelievable. And so for some people, we're like, we're like, I'm not even going to engage the discussion. To be an atheist is actually really, really, really convenient. And I can't tell you how many people are atheists but don't think about it. They just are because their teachers were, their friends were, people on TV are. And so they mindlessly go there. And what I want to do is say, let's not mindlessly go that direction because there's too much to lose. The intelligent atheist is a very different bag altogether. They are thoughtful. They have looked at evidence. And, and what I want to contend is that why is it that almost every thoughtful atheist I sit down with and I listen to on TV doesn't land with evidence. They land with, well, if God is good, then why is there evil? 
That's a distraction. Let's actually face the core of the issue. And so David says, the fool, the person who actually suppresses what is obvious, says in his heart there is no God. In fact, from David's perspective, and this is where I would land too, that there is some level of massive suppression that has to happen to be able to look at the most obvious things around us and say, accident. We would never do it in any other sphere of life but in the most infinitely complex ecosystem that ever could be imagined from the human body to the world. We step back and say, no, accident. We would never do it. You've heard the whole um, watch thing. If you're in the forest and you see a watch on the ground, you would never say a series of events after millions of years evolved into this thing. You would never say that. And yet when we look at the complexity of the human brain and the eyeball, we say, oh, accident. We actually suspend some of the most basic parts of our brains to come to this conclusion. And, And what the psalmist says, the only way to get there is if you're suppressing something. And therein is the challenge, by the way, in a discussion between a theist and an atheist. There's always something underneath the discussion. And one of my desires is to kind of not play games and to say, can we just put that thing on the table? Can we put that thing on the table? Um, He goes on. And again, the Bible isn't always concerned with offensive or not offensive. And this is where I think if if you were reading this from a Hebrew perspective, you would probably agree with David. So if somebody believes there is no God, um, and they're going to not, not, now have no moral code over their life except for whatever moral code has socially been put in front of them, they're probably not going to live up to the Bible standards. Can I get an amen on that one, right? right? If you don't believe there's a God, if I didn't believe there was a God, I would not obey most of what the Bible says, okay? I believe there's a God, and I still struggle to obey with a lot of it, but if I didn't believe there was a God, I can tell you I would not hold myself to some ancient, arbitrary, multi-century, millennia-old doctrine of dead people. I wouldn't do it. I'd figure out what makes me happy. I would do exactly that, and so here's what David says. They are corrupt, and from the Jewish perspective, this is absolutely right, that they are not following that law. And any atheist who read this could say, you're absolutely right. From your perspective, I am corrupt. If corruption is violating the law, then you're doggone right. I don't obey your law. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. The scriptures say these deeds are sin, these are evil, and the person who's an atheist has no obligation to this moral code. And so the atheist should be able to say, you're right. From your standards, I am doing abominable deeds. If there is a God and your God is real, then what I'm doing is legitimately sin and and frustrating for him. There is no one who does good, and the atheist should be able to step back and say, from your perspective, theist, from your perspective, Hebrew, you're right. I don't do your definition of good. I'll never be good by your standards because I don't believe in them. And so it's interesting, though, if you're already emotional about God, etc., and you read these, you could be like, Oh my gosh, how offensive. Can you believe the Bible called me a fool and says I do abominable deeds? From their perspective, you are and you do. And they could be wrong, but that's why we have to have the discussion. From your perspective, they're abominable because they believe in absolute truth. This goes both ways. But the text goes on, and this is for, excuse me, for those of you who are Christians, it says this in verse 2, the Lord, he looks down from heaven. The Lord is observing, he's seeing, he's watching. And he says this, he's looking down on the children of man to see If there are any who understand, I love this, who seek after God. The Lord looks down, and this is what he wants. Who really wants truth? Let me be honest. Most people do not want truth. That is not the heart cry. 
Most people want love, convenience, relationship, or their idol. Truth is a very inconvenient thing. Most people don't want it. And so God looks down and says, who actually, who actually will orient their lives around reality if I told them? And that's what he's watching. And here's why the discussion is so heated. Most people don't want it. And that's what's really heartbreaking. Because if there is a God, and if God the Father gave his son Jesus to die on the cross, no matter how inconvenient the implications might be, we just cannot look away from it. We can't. If there is a God, and he is out there, or she, or it, or they, or whatever it is, I cannot afford to look away. But there is something inside of the human condition, all of us, by the way, that says, look away, it's not convenient, the demand is too great, do something else. That's not just in the atheist, that's not just in the non-Christian, it's not just in the agnostic, it's in the Christian, it's in all of us. That sometimes we have to look away because the implications are far too catastrophic for our current reality. And what I, what I have the privilege of doing is, is looking at people every week and saying, move toward reality, not what you wish were true. And that's not an easy place to be. It's not an easy place to be as a believer in Jesus Christ who wants people to align their lives with truth because when you align your life with truth, this is where you function optimally, you flourish as a human made in the image of God. And when you don't function right, things break. And we watch brokenness all over and I'm like, oh, the brokenness is so unnecessary. You're designed this way for God. Please go this direction. But it's not convenient because the heart wants what the heart wants. Uh, what I want to do is I want to I pull back here, and I want to I um, put on the table what David is assuming, and then I want to add a few little like, fun things to it. David is assuming that any human being, uh, whether or not they have divine revelation through Scripture, whether or not God speaks to them personally, that every human being should be able to, A, look at this world and conclude some pretty specific things, number one. And number two, there's also an assumption that David is saying here is that um, it is a good thing for a human being to seek reality, to seek truth, to seek after God, to seek understanding. Like, these are good things. And so here's what, here's what I can do. I can have a good discussion with somebody who wants to put the best ideas on the table, I can have a good discussion with somebody who is willing to reorient their lives around reality if I could prove to them that that reality is there. What I can't have, and this is where I find myself giving myself a lot of permission actually, is I cannot have a discussion with somebody who doesn't believe in God because they're angry and they don't want truth because they're really frustrated. That, that is a really hard place to be. And so um, what I do is when I find myself in those circumstances, I try to be as kind and encouraging and answer the questions that I can. Um, but a lot of people that I find in one-on-one conversations, um, their atheism is the byproduct of, of massive hurt and pain and disappointment and letdown and observing very real and sad corruption uh, from their pastors or from their local church communities or whatever it is. And, and, and for a lot of people, like, that is the conclusion they come to to protect themselves. And what I want to say is whatever they did to you, do not let it ruin your life in eternity. Let's, let's take a moment. Let's step back. Let's get above the fray. Let's get above the hurt as, as impossible as it may feel because there's too much at stake. We can't afford to look, to look away. 
All right, so what I, what I like to do, there's, a, there's something in um, argumentation called the cumulative case argument, and very simply, it means this, that um, I'm not going to try to convince you um, by one singular piece of evidence, um, but that when you start adding um, evidence upon evidence upon evidence, cumul- cumulatively, it makes a case that's really undeniable. So, um, for example, um, I have a brain, and uh, you're like, no, you don't, prove it. And I'm like, ah, well, I can't like, cut myself open. So, um, well, if you look at all the people who do have brains, they do the things I'm doing, and my brain is doing different things, and if you, whatever, like, I try to make a cumulative case, even though I can't show you, like, I can't let you touch it or feel it, and, and we're used to cumulative case all the time, because we don't even know we're doing it, right, but every single time I meet somebody, I believe they're alive because of the accumulation of evidence, and so we're used to this, but I like to formalize it sometimes and say, like, listen, one of these probably wouldn't push you over the edge, but when you put them together, um, the psalmist, David, God, and I think logic actually demand a conclusion. Now, can I prove it to you? No, I can't prove to you that I have a brain. I believe I do. I think I do. And some of you are like, eh, we'll find out by the end of this. Um, Mo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but this is one of my goals is to, is to help you put this together and to say, listen, this is what David assumed. And this is what God looks for. God looks for people who want understanding. Uh, he looks to reveal himself to people who want to reorient their lives around truth if he will reveal it. So the first one comes down to um, a scientific law um, that everybody in the world agrees with. Don't you love when we start with a baseline that Christians and non-Christians, scientists and non-scientists can all agree with? Like, we're all on the same page. And so this first evidence is called the second law. It's the second law of, fill in the blank, thermodynamics. Some of you are like, oh, yeah. Thermo, and don't get lost in the bigness of the word, but this is a reality that affects your every single day life. It's this word entropy, this concept of disintegration, this concept that if you somehow um, have muscles and you don't use them, do they get bigger or smaller? The answer is smaller. If you have a house that's clean and you don't keep it up, does it get cleaner or dirtier? The answer is dirtier. Everything in life moves from a sense of order to chaos. Or if it's chaos, it never moves towards order. It just gets even more chaotic. And you see this in the expanding universe. It's getting farther and farther apart. Even the universe itself is experiencing the second law of thermodynamics, this movement toward entropy, this movement toward chaos. Never once in this world will you ever see anything move from chaos to order. It is scientifically, absolutely, 100% not possible unless, unless something conscious, something sentient, something aware, something acts upon that chaos. It's literally, scientifically impossible. Now, if you are an atheist, your standard understanding of how the world came to be is evolution. Literally, They cannot coexist. The theory of evolution violates scientific law. That is not, I'm not like telling you something that's some crazy, this isn't like flat earth theory, okay? Like this is actually simple. The the idea of secular evolution under an atheistic worldview is that order, massive amounts of order emerge out of chaos despite the fact that our scientific laws tell us this is impossible. Here's my problem. What would make otherwise very intelligent, very smart, high IQ, doctors and PhDs and researchers the world over say this, there is no God, we all emerged out of massive amounts of chaos, chaos, and not just chaos, 
an explosion of epic proportions beyond anything you could imagine where all matter is condensed to a finite point bigger than all the nuclear explosions you could possibly imagine times a billion, and then more. That out of that insanity, we emerged. That's not even logical. It's actually impossible. This isn't a preacher getting up here telling you this. This is just a dude who is thinking. And so here's what we, here's what we know. Already, already, it is scientifically impossible that you and I are here unless something of epic and massive proportions entered into the chaos of all of this space matter and molded and formed us. You could sit down with anybody and just say, can we look up Wikipedia and the second law of thermodynamics and entropy and like talk about, no, don't get me wrong, that scientific principle is, is a very, very, very big concept with massive implications, and I'm giving you the pop culture overview, but when you break it down, that is what it means. And so we start right off the bat, and I just say, like, listen, if you don't believe in God, this is the Achilles heel of atheism. The fact that you exist is impossible without sentience and consciousness and intervention of epic proportions and magnitude of strength. It's just not possible. If you're a believer, when you look around, you should be like, something made me, and that should be really encouraging. For those of you who doubt uh, the truth of Christianity, and you're like, oh, I'm trying to figure out if he's Jesus, that again is a separate discussion that is wonderful, and we're going to have that in a couple weeks. Is Jesus really God? How do we know? But the fact that you're here should tell you a couple beautiful, amazing things, that there is something really powerful that brought all of this space chaos and created us. That's amazing. Here's the second one. It's the law of design. And uh, I want to take this maybe in a different way than you've heard it before. So the law of design uh, is a very, very simple concept. And, and the concept is this, um, that if, if something uh, is designed, um, th- it is impossible. It's really just the outplay, the overflow of the second law of thermodynamics, that if it's designed, that there was intervention that was creative, conscious, sentient, that intervened and brought the design um, to place. Now, the teleological argument or teleological argument, it's one of my favorites because it's just so obvious. Here's what it says. The existence of intricate and intense order necessitates a powerful and conscious God. Uh, the existence of an intricate and intense order necessitates a powerful and conscious God. Um, can we take a minute and just get um, illogical? So um, I, I, wanna, I, I wrote it on the screen here so you can just kind of see this. Um, Tell me if this makes sense to you. Compatible sexual partners with compatible DNA, capable of raising offspring simultaneously evolving at the same time in the same location, violating the second law of thermodynamics. That's insanity, okay? That, that, that doesn't even like, logically make sense. So now we're gonna, just, we're gonna take this a step, a step deeper. And, and I wrote this down, and so this is the best of what atheism and science has to offer for making sense of our current reality. So think about every species that requires compatible sexual partners to procreate. Just ponder that for a moment. For mankind, any other species for that matter to exist, you don't just need one male to evolve. You need a complementary male with a complementary female to evolve at the same pace, at the exact same time, in a very long period of history, with the physical capacity to not just find each other on this enormous planet and then procreate, but both have the mental capacity and knowledge to bring that first baby to term, have the baby successfully, raise the baby, have another child, and have those two children procreate, then raise more children together in like 
fashion. Oh yeah, and by the way, 99% of all the species that have ever existed have gone extinct. This means that this thing didn't just happen with humanity, it happened with every other sexually compatible species that has ever existed, all about the same time in human history, by the way. So I'm, I'm looking at you, you're an atheist. Let's go back to the second law. Let's go back to the law of design. It's not just too complicated, it's so infinitely complicated. And I'm not saying this to be like anything other than if we're going to talk, let's put the best ideas on the table. So I'm giving you the best I got. And then again, I really hope that you text your questions to 555-888. And I want to invite you, um, hey, what about this? What about this? And if we're not smart enough to answer it, I'm going to find a rocket scientist and I'm going to bring him in. And we're going to see if he's got the best answers. We're just going to figure out, are there better responses? Because again, my objective is not to shut the conversation down. It's to bring the best that I got and then to invite the best that you have back. Uh, Number three, the law of life. Uh, This is just a very simple, observable fact. Life only and ever begets life. Sentience or the ability to be self-reflective, conscious, to know you exist is only birthed from sentience. Consciousness is only birthed from other consciousness. You've never, ever observed anywhere that all of a sudden something inanimate became self-reflective and self-aware. Because that kind of self-awareness only ever emerges from another level of self-awareness through birth. It's just, a, it's just a simple observable fact. And again, is any one of these cases gonna convince somebody? I think when you start adding up the evidence with the right foundations, you can look back and you can say with David, and he looks at the world, he looks at his neighbors, he looks at the people who are like, there's no God, I don't believe it, there's nothing you can say to convince me. And yet the most basic science requires, it, it, it doesn't just offer it as here's one solution, it requires a conscious, powerful, creator, who intervenes with intentionality and built all the systems of our body, of animals, of plants, etc., DNA, RNA, the list goes on and on, the human brain, the human eye, and that over and over again with every different species. It takes and requires a magnitude of intelligence we can't even touch. Like all of our best science in the world is light years behind the knowledge and the abilities of whatever this God is. So you might be asking, Michael, why all the logic? Because wherever there is good logic, there is God. Everything God does is logical. Hence the challenge of theology. Sometimes the challenge of theology is figuring out, God, why did you do what you did? Because whatever you did is the most logical thing to do. Like there is never a moment in history where God does something and says, whoops, wish I wouldn't have done that. Man, if I could go back and I could do it all over again, I would do this instead. Like every decision God makes is the best decision the first time every time. And everything God does is logical. Everything God says is actually rooted in the best logic. And so when we talk about logic, we're actually talking about very spiritual things because God did wire us with minds. Sin has also made it so that our hearts, powerful as they are, seek to deceive our minds on a very regular basis. And what I try to do is just say, let's, let's try to put aside all the, all the things that we need to be true and just ask the right questions. And I think this is the question for most people When we really talk about is there a God, the question comes down to this. Will I believe what I know to be true or what I want to be true? Will I believe what I know to be true or what I want to be true? 
And I don't say this with any judgment or condemnation, but my experience with most people is that they will choose to believe what they want to be true. And this is because of sin inside of us. I am guilty of this just as much as anybody else. There are probably actually multiple things that I believe against logic because deep down inside, I want them to be true. There's a second kind of atheism. I just call it practical atheism. We mentioned earlier, and this is the idea that we know something is true, but we act like it's not there so that we don't have to face the implications, right? You know that? You know something is there. If someone were to really ask you if you're the 90%, is there a God, you would say yes, and then you would make sure you suppressed any deep thought about it from that point on because you know the implications on your life if you really go deeper. So what I want to do is I want to close and play, I'm going to play a game with you. Um, I want to read uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 23. And we're going to ask a question. Um, what are some basic things that we can just learn about God? Not from scripture, but just using our mind and looking at this world. Look at Romans 1. It says this. What can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. So what can be made, what is known about God should be super obvious. There should be a bunch of things out there. And then here's what he says. Here's, here's some things you can simply know. Um, for his invisible attributes, so there are invisible attributes, there are qualities about God that we don't need to meet him or read the Bible to know. They should just be blatantly obvious when we use our minds, we look at the universe, we consider the best that science has to offer, his invisible attributes. Namely, here's a couple things that you should be able to determine. His eternal power. When you look at the stars, and now we're more more culpable than the author of Romans was and the people of this time, because now we know the magnitude of space, that we now can look at this and we're like, what kind of unbelievable power could bring order out of that level of chaos? He says this is eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that, that, that have been made. So let's talk about a few things. God is. I wanted to share with you a few things. This is the tip of the iceberg, by the way. Like, um, if you guys want to text 555-888 and you actually want to say, here are some other things that God is, I would love to receive those as well, just to, just to read them. Uh, can we agree that without reading anything from the Bible, just looking at creation, we can say this, God is extremely powerful. Can we agree on that? Whatever the conscious thing is that intervened under the chaos of space matter, we know that. We know this. He's very, he, she, it, they, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'll call it he because I'm a Christian. That's my worldview. But he is very intelligent. Like try making an eyeball and a brain and a nervous system. And then think about all the different species and all the different versions of eyeballs and rods and cones and this and that. Like just think about all of that. And then think about all of the things that you can't see but are there, all the invisible parts of our world, different uh, levels of light and radiation, et cetera, all that crazy. He's extremely powerful. Supremely creative. Okay, if you were to say, here's a forehead, a nose, eyes, a chin, a mouth, and cheeks. How many variations can you make of this? I'm looking at y'all and like, y'all have the same fundamental things in your face, but you don't look at anything alike. Like the, even the immense creativity that he has injected into the human condition, let alone animals, let alone plants, let alone, I mean, unbelievably creative uh, in terms of how he came up with stuff. Like he could have been way more simple. We could all look the same, but he didn't do that. Very creative. A master of science and math, if not the creator of it. 
like the greatest minds of this universe could learn something from whoever designed all of this, right? Minimally, I can tell you those are some things that God is. Now, I can tell you some things that I believe that whatever made this, I can tell you some things that are probably valuable to that thing, person, to that God, uh, because when you look at someone's creation, right, you can learn a lot about who they are. When you look at someone's mess, you can also learn a lot about who they are. Like, I can walk into my kitchen, I can know exactly what kid was in there, because they leave certain kind of messes, their reflection of who they are, right? And, uh, and so God, though, is leaving, like, breadcrumbs, and he's like, this is what I'm like. Look at, my, look at what I've done, and now you can observe a few things. So number one, I can, I can observe that order is really important to whatever made this because everything functions on a meticulous level of order in this universe from the human body. One little thing in your thyroid goes off and your whole world is turned upside down, right? One hormone in your body is just a little bit off. One, one, one dysfunction or bro- piece of brokenness in DNA and RNA code and, and, and chromosomes, like everything, it, it is so meticulous uh, that obviously whoever made us loves order. Think about rhythms. Think about all the rhythms of life, of seasons, of, of outside. We have uh, fall, winter, summer. Just think about the rhythms of the day, the 24 hours, the monthly rhythms, the annual rhythms. Like Whatever happened in this order of things, that whoever made this loves rhythm, uh, loves the sense of consistency. Life. Whoever made this really, really likes life because there's just life everywhere. Diversity. Here's one. Sexuality. Uh, whoever designed us infused sexuality into every single part of creation uh, that reproduces. It's powerful. Like, everywhere you go, it's there. Survival, the will in everything alive to survive and to keep itself alive for the most part, it's pretty, pretty unbelievable. Here's one. I can tell you that whoever designed this has a unique, at least, place in its heart, if you could say, for humanity. Why is it that humanity is the only, only species on this planet with the ability to self-reflect? Why is it that we literally are the top of the food chain and we subdued the entire, why why were we imbued with those kind of powers and those kind of abilities? There's something about whatever made us, created us, and designed us with an impulse to go after him, to, to, to ask questions. Like, we don't do that by accident. That's not how this works. Love. Like, it just drives humanity. I think about companionship and relationship. I mean, if you ever watch, like, two dogs that live together, like brother and sister dogs, and they just, they're always together, and they're just companions. You look at the, the wild, and you just see relationship and companionship over every part of creation. Everywhere you go, you're just seeing these values all around us. Verse, verse 20 goes on and says, because of all of this, because it's just there, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Get this. This is is absolutely a throwback to Psalm 14. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Somebody who sees what is so obvious and then suppresses it because of some sort of ulterior motive, whether you're aware of the motive or not. Most people are not, by the way. I've never met somebody who says, I know there's a God, I'm going to suppress it, I mean, I'm going to be an atheist because it's inconvenient for my life. Nobody ever says that. For the most part, it's unknown, which is why I want to bring some of these best ideas to say, I do think there's more people out there who call themselves atheists, but they just haven't heard the best arguments yet. And it says this, they exchange the glory of the immortal God. Like whatever, whatever you've replaced God with in your life, There's nothing more beautiful and satisfying and glorious than that you and I were made for God. 
And so we get to the end of this, and, and the goal in this is really to push your brains to think. Uh, again, if you're a Christian, it's to encourage you and to say, you're not crazy. In fact, science demands a powerful creator. Um, and it doesn't matter whether, what, what the best of science has to offer. Um, when you deny basic realities, you have to ask the question, what else is going on? And so when I sit down with people, I just always ask, like, what's going on? Tell me about your experience. Like, the goal is not to beat up. The goal is to really listen, because behind every theist and every atheist is a story. There's a story that led them to the conclusion. Sometimes I think the most honest people are the agnostics who say, clearly there's something, but I don't know what it is. Of all the people in the world, those are the ones that I'm like, you know what, I just appreciate that you know your limits. You know there's something. You don't know how it all works together. And this is where also we want to explore God to come in and just to help you, to help you think and to encourage you and to lead you on this path as we explore God together. Let's pray together. Father, I want to, I want to just take a moment and thank you for creation. Creation screams so much. Like We can learn so much about you just by looking at your artwork. And yet, God, I, I often wonder, despite the fact that you scream through creation, why aren't you more loud? Why don't you physically come down? I've often wondered those questions, but Lord, I, I, at the end of the day, um, I don't know all those answers. There's a lot that we just don't know. But I do know something as enormously powerful as you. Um, I want to know you. Whatever the implications, whatever, whatever the inconvenience. And so God, if someone is here and they've been struggling in their faith and they're even trying to figure out, like, how do I know there's a God, would you, would you actually use for them what you've used for people all over the world throughout millennia? Would you just show them the beauty of your creation and affirm in their hearts that there is a good God who loves them? And Lord, for those wrestling, um, maybe they have had really, what they have felt, airtight arguments for the fact in their mind that there's no God, would you... If you're real, would you show them a better way? Because whatever is real should be the most obvious and logical. Lord, for all of us, if Jesus truly is the Son of God, would you reveal him more and more to us? Help us. And Lord, we confess the reason we all need to explore is because you are infinite and beyond comprehension. We confess that we put you into these little boxes and we want you to perform for us. We want you to look like we think you should look. And the reality is you just don't. And so we step back as very small and very finite, and we just say we love you. Whatever, whatever you have revealed about yourself, we submit our notions of who you are to the reality of who you are, despite the demand in our life. And Lord, even as we come to this communion table, we're reminded that you're not cold, dark, and stoic, but you are engaged and you love us, and you have shown that to us through Jesus. So as we remember, as we reflect, would you just well up in our hearts an unbelievable amount of gratitude. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, the Bible breaks through, and this thing called general revelation or things that you can just generally learn about God from looking at creation will only take you so far. It will never, ever tell you God's name. 
It will never, ever tell you the way of salvation. You can, nobody can look at creation and figure out where are we going to go, how are we going to get there, what is God like, what's his nature and character. Like, we can learn some things, but we're really, really limited. And so the Bible breaks through and just gives us unbelievable amount of clarity to God's name, his nature. And even as the Bible talks about his nature, he's so complex that we can't even get our minds around it. Some people will say, well, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, I don't get it. Like, talk to amoeba and say, amoeba, try to understand the complexity of a human being, body and soul and all of its systems, right? And the, the gap between God and humanity is infinitely more uh, long than the gap between an amoeba and a human being in our complexity. And so, of course, like, we get to this place where we're like, God, you are, even as you describe yourself, I'm having a hard time grasping uh, the infinite God and finite words from a finite mind. But he has given us everything that we need to know him and understand him. And God did one of the most unthinkable, awesome things. God became flesh so that there is no human experience he does not personally relate to. And Jesus Christ became flesh and died for our sins on the cross. And so as Christians, we come together and we celebrate communion. And this is our way of remembering that God did not leave humanity wandering and wondering. But he intervened and he brought unusual clarity. From the very beginning, from Adam and Eve all the way to the current day, God is revealing more and more in everything we need. And so communion is, is a time when believers come together and we remember the most critical and catalytic moment of our faith, which is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And so we come together and we remember that our greatest problem is sin, which has separated us from God, and God has so loved us that he decisively, with finality, dealt with it on the cross. So we come together and we celebrate this and we remember what God has done for us. And if you're here from a different church and you're visiting, I want to say, love you, so glad you're here. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, would you partake of communion with us? We would love as brothers in Christ to celebrate communion with you. If you are from a different church and uh, you have um, never trusted in Christ or you're visiting and you've never trusted in Christ, um, here's our ask of you if you've never believed in Jesus. Um, would you let the elements pass by you? The reason we say this, not to make you feel weird, nobody will notice anything, nobody's gonna judge you or look down on you, but the Bible actually says that when you partake of communion, you're making a declaration. You're declaring that I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, that he's God, that the Father raised him from the dead on the third day, and that he's coming back. You're declaring that you believe salvation is not for good people or earned by works, but Jesus was good for you that he was your substitute. You're, you're saying a whole bunch of things that just by partaking of these elements, you may not believe. And so I want to just ask, as the elements are passed, um, don't feel the need, please just don't take, but maybe you're here today and you are so aware that you believe, you don't know why, maybe you've actually put up roadblocks and you're like, I believe, oh no, what do I do? Um, let, me, let me encourage you. Make partaking of communion, this nonverbal declaration, the first step of your declaration of trust in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for your sins and he was raised from the dead. And then if that's a decision you want to make today, myself, anyone up here, you see anybody with a tag, we would just love to pray with you, encourage you. Uh, if there's any questions we can answer. Some of you, you're like, I don't know, I got a gajillion questions. Um, and you're, you're like, I, I don't want to text a number with my questions. I want to look a real human in the face. Um, I'd love to sit down with you. We'd love to just honor all of your questions. And, uh, and if you seek truth, um, we really believe God will reveal himself to you. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to have a time of silence, and then um, the ushers are going to uh, hand out the elements. 
And uh, we're going to worship together while that's happening. If you'd hold on to the elements until the end of the song, we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment of silence.